Welcome to Season 10 of American Political History, the North American Contest, Loudoun. The North American theater was in shambles. Massachusetts and New York were both staging expeditions in Albany. Their political rivalry, though, had left the expeditions undersupplied and purposely sabotaged. Governor Shirley had also received news that his son, who was acting as Braddock's personal secretary, had been shot and killed during that expedition's retreat. To compound everything, reports were coming in that the English fleet had failed to blockade the St. Lawrence, allowing Quebec to resupply from France. When word reached Whitehall of Braddock's defeat, Whitehall was already consumed with finger-pointing about why England was facing defeats on all fronts. Besides North America, England's Grand Alliance was splitting apart in Europe. The Dutch, ground down by decades of defeat to France, had indicated they would not welcome a war between England and France. Their reliability for support in any upcoming war was now in question. The Austrians were focused on the recovery of Sicilia, even if this meant rapprochement with France. And Whitehall was forced to increase the subsidy benefits to Russia in order to ensure their support agreeing to £100,000 sterling annually in subsidies, which would increase to £500,000 sterling in the event that Russia joined England in war. And France was only delaying formal declaration of war against England so that it had time to build up its naval forces. In response to this chaos and defeat, the king shuffled his privy councillors, and this decided the patrons who supported the governors in colonial America. Governor Shirley of Massachusetts was replaced by his political rival, Thomas Ponal. Governor Robert Morris of Pennsylvania was just removed. William Johnson was promoted to the Colonel of the Six Nations. Supply contracts for the war in North America would be handled only by a London firm, which so happened to be run by Oliver Delancey, the younger brother of the Governor of New York. But Whitehall had not addressed the military leadership in North America. In the summer of 1756, Major General James Abercrombie was perfectly willing to wait for another commanding officer to take charge. So he conducted war council after war council until someone else could be appointed to the post. That someone else would arrive in July of 1756. He was Lieutenant General James Campbell, Earl of Loudoun, and he would arrive in New York bringing with him 6,000 additional redcoats. He came with the most expansive civil-military powers in the history of the British Empire. In all but title, he would be becoming the vice-regal of all colonies of North America. His first action was to summon Governor Shirley to face accusations of incompetence for his leadership in the prior campaign in North America. Governor Shirley was accused of violating army procedures in recruitment and promotions, using military allocations to enrich his friends and patrons, and unauthorized, unaccounted expenditures of the royal purse of failing to properly supply the royal army, and leaving strategic points like Fort Oswego dangerously exposed to the French. Governor Shirley would write feverishly letters to Loudon to justify his actions. Loudon would use these letters as evidence against Shirley and admissions of his crimes. Loudon thought Shirley's major strategic flaw was allowing colonial militia to have any rank amongst the British regulars, seeing this action as doing more to ferment the general opposition in North America towards British forces, codifying equal standing in the military, had broken down the chain of command of English society. But there was also pressing logistical matters which Loudon would have to clean up from Shirley's leadership. 
the New England militia had all signed single-year levy contracts, which now were expiring. Standard army procedure was multi-year contracts to match the duration of the military campaigns. As Loudoun attempted to standardize the operations in North America, the colonies themselves refused to cooperate with him, saying that his actions were a pretext for claiming direct control over our colonies and our militia forces. Loudoun would be forced to back away from some of his ideas on how to incorporate colonial militia into a subservient role supporting the British army. But this did not keep him from writing to Whitehall damning letters reporting back the obstacles created by Governor Shirley's outrageous crimes. The next political issue was that colonial Americans were unfamiliar with the English tradition of quartering troops. This is civilians giving room and board to English army men without compensation. Typically, this was done in the winter because during the summer, the army would be out fighting on the battlefields. Loudoun was outraged with colonial governors and their assemblies when they refused to provide quartering for the army that was protecting them. And he was irate when he found out that the only ones who were cooperating were doing so because Governor Shirley was paying them what accounted to standard rent for their housing. Loudon made it clear to colonial officials that he was not asking for their permission to quarter English troops. This was an obligation of every Englishman to perform. When officials in Albany would refuse a quartering request, he simply informed them that if they did not supply quarters willingly, the army would take their homes permanently by force if necessary. The threat of violence was a political solution for the short term. Loudon commented back in letters to Whitehall, Americans don't seem to understand the concept of self-sacrifice, of service for the common cause. There is, by contrast, no shortage of Americans willing to plunder the royal purse. They have assumed for themselves rights and privileges totally unknown in the mother country, and these rights have no purpose but to obscure themselves from sacrificing for the broader English society. America is a topsy-turvy place where opposition to royal authority seems not to come from the lower people, but from the leading people of society. And the royal governors discard their duty to the crown, laying themselves low to their local assemblies, which are their paymasters. There is something indeed afoot in America, and I do not know quite what to call it. The formal declaration of war between England and France would finally come, after France sieged the English fortifications at Menorca in the Mediterranean. Russia, unprepared for war and knowing they could expect little English support on the battlefields of Europe, agreed to neutrality with France, despite Whitehall's years of subsidies. In reaction to these failures, the foreign minister and first lord of the treasury, the Duke of Newcastle himself, resigned. He was replaced by William Pitt, who would immediately make North America's theater his priority for the war. Lieutenant General Loudon would receive an additional 8,000 regulars by the beginning of 1757, along with orders to capture Fort Louisbourg before making an attack on Quebec. This plan would mean that the border between Canada, New York, and New England would need to be defended with heavy reliance on colonial militia. Loudon turned his attention to the colonial militia, reorganized and standardizing them into 100-man companies with one colonial officer. Company commanders would be staffed by English officers, and these new colonial companies could be easily integrated into the regular English army. In March of 1757, Loudon ordered an embargo on all port cities in colonial America. No ships were to leave port until the order was lifted. 
He had reliable intelligence that Boston merchants were still engaged in trade with Canadians and regularly sharing intelligence with the French. He could not risk a compromise of his planned attack on Fort Louisbourg. And, conveniently, the embargo left a large quantity of unemployed sailors and dock workers, which could be diverted to supporting the needs of launching his expedition. What Loudon didn't consider, or had no empathy for, was the economic damage of a long-term embargo on the colonies. In Philadelphia, the price of that season's corn crop collapsed. What could not be shipped was dumped into the gutters. In Virginia and Maryland, tobacco crops remained locked in warehouses. In Boston, the price of bread skyrocketed, while fish rotted on the docks. Every colony suffered except for New York, which had a large English army currently wintering in their city to which they could sell their excess supplies to. In May, Virginia and Maryland convinced Loudoun to lift their embargo to London so that they could sell their tobacco crops and further fund Loudoun's military plans in North America. At the end of June, his expedition of 100 ships and 6,000 men left to take Fort Louisburg. Seven days later, the embargo was lifted on colonial America. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating. And share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.